Hey guys, welcome back to the Do Good Podcast with myself, Rob Watson. And in this episode, I had a really lovely chat with two really inspiring ladies called Kelly Bubble and Debbie Clark, who both work for the awesome food cooperative Unicorn over in Manchester. I really enjoyed this chat. I think for me, it's an inspiring company. I've been going to this place for at least half a dozen years and really buy into the ethos and the way it's set up. Like I said, it's a cooperative, so you know it's very much about equal say, equal pay, very much like they've all got an influence, they've all got a say, and you can feel it when you're in there, you really can. So I won't say too much about it because I just want to get straight into today's episode. So without further ado, here we go. Firstly, thank you very much for allowing me to come and see your space today. I'm upstairs in your in the unicorn offices and I've been in this shop, you know, must be about at least seven or eight years and we just come in. And what I get about it more than anything, it's like, it's just the feeling that you get when you're inside it. If you compare it to say going into Tesco's or Sainsbury's, the people, I don't know, there's much more life around the place and you can feel like there's a better interaction with the staff and some more autonomy as well with them. Where maybe if you're in Sainsbury's and I don't know, they would always, I don't know, they don't really feel like they've got that spark and it's just something great about this. So. What I'd love to hear about is just, you know, for those who won't be aware of Unicorn, if you could just give us a little bit of an overview about the organisation. So uh, Unicorn is a grocery. We sell mainly ingredients, really good for people who like cooking, like good food. Um, we've been going for 23 years and we're a workers' cooperative. So the people you see on the shop floor, generally the people who are making all the decisions behind the scenes as well. There's nearly 70 of us. Um, and we were set up based on some principles that we're really proud of that you seek to um, create a world that's more sustainable where employment is secure where good food is accessible for all people and those down the supply chain that are usually exploited uh, are acknowledged and treated a bit better but it's an imperfect trading system we've got and we're not perfect but we strive every every day, every week, every month, every year to just nudge it and improve it and and that's happened over time. It's um yeah, it, and, and those foundations, those principles are really the thing that inform our decisions that have helped us create this space as it is today. And I think it's interesting that you it's really nice actually to hear that you get a sense of, of stuff feeling kind of some autonomy and empowerment because that is a really really kind of crucial part of of the way we operate and it's lovely to hear that that comes across it's it, it's very meaningful for us as workers so it's it's nice to hear that it's reflected in the kind of experience you've had here as a customer so it's been going 24 years <coughs> who who set it up are they still around no there was a few people the main guy was called adam york who who um, had spent some time at daily bread which is another co-op um, they've got two mm, co-ops, yeah, one in Northamptonshire and one in Cambridge I think yeah and and within the world of co-ops there's a lot of sharing of knowledge and information um, and they had a really good basic um, model um, similar to ours large warehouse space buying direct big storage space so you can get the good deals pass on the savings to customers mm. Our model changed um, a bit with our fresh offer, which is fairly unique. Over a quarter of our sales of fresh organic fruit and veg. We do a lot of crop planning with the UK. And that's something that was started by Adam, who's a founder who now is in Wales with his own market garden. And that's kind of where his passion lies lies now. Um, but he stayed for, the other founders didn't weren't around very long, some were there. To, to set the place up, not actually work in the shop. Um, Adam stayed around until 2010, so for quite a while before he went to uh, grow his vegetables. Mm. And that was quite a, a big moment for us, I think, our, our sort of the, the final one of the founding members leaving. Um, and, you know, there was that sense of, of you know, where will things go now? And, and I think, you know, there's definitely been changes since he left, and but. I think the strength of a co-op is that it doesn't rest on one person ever. It certainly shouldn't. You know, there's this whole team of people who have shared responsibility and shared kind of ownership. And um, 
and the departure of, of key people, it, it has an impact, but it, you know, in an ideal system like this, nobody's irreplaceable. And um, yeah, I mean, we owe a lot to those, to those founding members, but the, the co-op has continued to kind of evolve and grow and thrive um, in all sorts of different ways, so. And you know, Manchester's pretty much known, isn't it, as well, for being mechanised for almost like founding like the cooperative movement, isn't it? Was it back in eighteen hundreds in yeah. Rochdale? Mm. Yeah, with the Rochdale pioneers, you know, and we're proud of that history. Um, there's a lovely museum that you know people can go to and have a look, and they've got the shop set up as it would be. But you know, that was at a time when you know poor people were working really hard um, for very little money. And the basic food stuffs that they could afford were corrupted with with other things. So the Rochdale pioneers, at the time, were really radical. It doesn't sound it because they were just setting up a shop that was going to give pure flour and sugar and you know basic ingredients to workers. But because that was messing with the business interests of others, um, they faced a, a, a lot of um, barriers. I think at one point did. Did they have the shop set on fire? There was, there was definitely a quite a hostile environment. Yeah. yeah. For what is you know just a basic you know food that is honest and you know so it's uh, yeah we're really proud of that heritage and we kind of think you know ours is about basic food, decent food, you know as it should be really. Yeah. We're, yeah. It's a real proud tradition to be part of that. Definitely. Continuing the spirit on. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the actual cooperative structure then in here and like the working environment and how that kind of mm. goes. So it is, it's quite a unique way of working in lots of different ways. Um, firstly, that we all multitask. So that's not to say that we all do everything. We don't. Um, but uh, we all do lots of different kinds of tasks from sort of you know, shop floor tasks like stocking the shelves and working on the tills and, and otherwise kind of serving customers um, and interacting with our customers um, through to kind of being involved in the in the sort of back office stuff, the, the ordering, the buying, the, the kind of, I suppose, the sort of management level. And then we're all directors as well, so we all have a responsibility to sort of take a role in the sort of strategic direction of the business and make the big key decisions about you know what direction we're going to go in <clears throat> so it's it's quite unique in that sense um, we also operate with a, a pretty flat sort of management structure so everybody um, has equal pay we all get paid the same hourly rate um, and we all have um, equal say so again uh, that's not to say everybody has a say on everything. We, we delegate a lot of responsibility to um, to teams and to individuals, but there isn't that kind of typical chain of command that you, you get in a, in a conventional um, business structure. But it is something we are... It, it's kind of a work in progress, really. We're, we're constantly evolving the structure we have and and perhaps the last few years as, as we've grown from a membership of well originally it was what six or seven people when we opened something like that and we're at just under 70 now um, obviously you know structural changes have had to happen in that time but the last few years perhaps we haven't adjusted the way we manage and govern the organization in line with the growth in members so that's something that we're addressing at the moment and and really looking at kind of delegating as much as we can so that the, the smallest number of people possible are involved in, in the decisions um, that they need to be. That's not to say we, you know, we don't want people to, to have a say on things, but only on the things they, they really need to, you know, that are really yeah. going to affect them. And it's the principle of, um, of devolving power so, so that those who are actually doing the job and who know what they're doing... Mm. So the veg team, the veg odd, they you know they can make those decisions based on understanding what our strategy is, you know what our ethics are, um, rather than um, getting tied up in talking because you know everything that has that effect you know impacts on the cost of the business and you know you want to be able to pay living wages and have the have the produce affordable and have your energy focused mm. in the best way as mm. well. Yeah. So it's 
learning yeah. to do that while being informed and in- inclusive and um and efficient you know and trust is a big thing mm. with that you know building trust in is is so important it is and also just looking kind of objectively at, at where decisions are made and who really needs to be involved in them because you know we both find you know people can ask us for an opinion and we'll have a strong opinion on nearly everything but that doesn't mean we're really gonna be impacted if a smaller group of people make that decision and don't ask us you know that's fine we trust them um yeah i think we're fairly not unique you know every well every co-op's probably unique um but um from the early days we've always kind of been quite good about devolving power and responsibility to teams and individuals um, with the understanding of um, you know our connection with the with the court comes through the work that we do um, not talking about it so much yeah. in meetings with each other yeah um, yeah oh, it's refreshing to see I'm interested to know, because I imagine some of years have been here a lot longer than, say, some of the newer ones. Mm. Do you have anything considered, like, the certain elders in the company that might be, not say they have more influence, but, well, they might have some more than a bit more of an input because of the experience there? Yeah, the yeah, having a flat structure and having equal say is an aspiration. I mean, you can put mm. all the kind of structures in place to try and make that the reality, but it is almost impossible to adjust for that kind of yeah length of experience I think that that particularly um, we're experimenting with ways of trying to sort of equalize participation in meet in meetings so that um, at the moment we're sort of trying out um, speaking in rounds so going around in a in a small group it only works in a small group but um, you know, having discussions in quite a structured way so that everybody is called upon to, to contribute. And, and I think in many situations that really helps people step up who haven't been, have, who haven't found it so easy to contribute. Um, but yeah, that, that voice of experience thing, you know, to a large extent, uh, it's quite natural, you know, people who, who have had more experience in the business they, they have that contribution to make but um I think it's to not see it as a bad thing I think that to to the ideal of a flat structure is an ideal um but these things are theoretical so they don't they don't there, there is none that exists unless it's forced and which can be quite bad for the human spirit so it's trying to get the best of everything it's trying to encourage it to flatten uh, while embracing skills, personalities, um, uh, the experience that someone might have, but also having a fluid structure, which means uh, someone who comes with a lot of passion, experience and skill um, can can take that on. Not everybody wants that. Some people want to work physically hard within a court, and that is their skill, and their, um, and that can be a, a really important thing, you know, at that point in time, someone's just going to get on with their job, completely reliable, good eye for detail. Um, and it's understanding that everyone's got this amount of time and it's valued equally, um, but there is a fluidity there. Mm. And not to either suppress skills and experience or um, not encourage others to thrive. And so that's, that's a balance to always work towards. Mm. But I think, um, so So obviously co-ops always have to operate democratically um, and some interpret that, in, in, it can be interpreted in lots of different ways. Um, you know, in many co-ops decisions are made by voting, which is certainly, you know, way more democratic than, than a situation in a conventional business. But we actually make decisions by consensus. So essentially... You, you can't really get outvoted. So if you do have a really strong opinion on something and you can, you know, express um, where that's coming from, you have the right to, to block decisions that you're really not happy with. So whether you're experienced or not, you know, the newest member has the right to, you know, have that, that power of, um, and, you know, to make their voice heard, especially in key decisions that affect the whole co-op. So, for instance, uh, 
Kelly kindly took me out onto the little roof garden and seen your pond and the solar panels. So who would say, oh, you know what, I think a pond would be great. How, how does something like that get sort of actioned? Because it's not necessarily just the business owner saying, yes, let's do that. So, you know, our, as I said, our principles are our foundations. So um, when we bought this building, that was a lot of money. So it was a while before we could start to do improvements. But um, it should be, it should be um, implicitly understood that whenever we do something, we try and do it in line with our principles. So if we are um, improving the building and this was a solution to insulation, you know, we should seek what's sustainable, what, what that encourage um, a better ecosystem. If there are options out there that, that we can afford and that logistically are possible, we should strive towards them. So it would be um, a group of people that are either a natural fit, say if we have a site team, or it might be people who have voted to be on a team who have got certain skills that are necessary. Um, and hopefully they'll bring a proposal that is um, in line with our principles and with our practical needs. Mm. And then the whole membership would would be asked to make a decision on that for, for, a, for a large sort of expenditure like that that would that would come to the whole membership although there have been times when we've had to make decisions quick where there's been a decision where it's been agreed for a really large budget and there's lots of smaller decisions that maybe would have usually come to members but you've just got to sometimes act quickly mm -hmm. in and, business and, and know when that that's important comes in i think and also yeah. the whole the, like kelly was saying you know co-ops work well I might even say they only work well when there is a shared understanding of what you're trying to achieve as a business. And for us, that, that is really our principles of purpose. You know, if you brought just any 70 people together who didn't have that shared understanding of the world and, and what the purpose of the business was, I think you would find it very, very difficult to move along in a sort of shared direction. Um, and that consensus decision making would just fall apart because it would be down to personal preferences rather than held together by some social good mm. or collective good mm. cops pop up all around the world and have through history kind of come in together to provide solutions to problems that society is is not helping with mm. you know and so that group of people have sort of collectively identified as something that they can contribute to yeah, like you say, because you've got them core values and principles in place, it just naturally attracts them kind of people. And I assume quite a few of them would have shopped in here previously, and then they would have got a feeling for it. And then yeah, and workers can come for different reasons because it could be that they're passionate about about cooking, about organics, about um, a more sustainable world. So, but hopefully along the way, you know, start to see the bigger picture of all, how all these things are connected, how people, the environment, how things are commodified it's very similar and so if we can start to understand that it's easier to work together rather than get bogged down in our individual passions yeah so how long have you been working for unicorn i've been here i, I i've sort of lost count but probably 14 years maybe 15 <laughs> and yeah i've been here 20 years wow so close to the founders we're two off, and right? a half when i started yeah, wow. so quite long. Yeah, it's almost embarrassingly long. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, well, no, I think it's it's rare in this day and age for people to spend you know fifteen and twenty years in companies like growing up. My mum and dad did; they would work in a company for thirty odd years. Mm -hmm. But now, but I think because it's just testament to sort of the ethos and the environment, and because you've got autonomy and you can have an input in the direction of the company, mm -hmm. then you know why would you want to leave? Yeah, so. I I came here for six months originally. That was the plan. And um, and actually, at, at that point, I barely knew what a workers' co-op was. I was definitely attracted more by the sort of the the trading model, like the way you know we focused on organic food and and the sort of responsible sourcing and the fair trade and that kind of thing. And and the worker ownership didn't. It, I I barely comprehended what that was going to mean, really. And um, but over the years, that has become absolutely central to to being here and it's definitely definitely why I'm why I'm still here I could imagine it'd be quite difficult to go into a different organization now which didn't have that same structure 
Yeah. It's hard to imagine for me. Yeah. Mm. I have to. I've done other jobs on the side. Since I've been so working here, <laughs> 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 all above board. <laughs> um, but they've generally been in organisations that were similarly minded. Um, yeah, I think it's always good to think about that because we can take so much for granted. Yeah, and then when you do think about the alternatives, I mean, I know even when I started working here and I was thirty then part of the reason was there were very few places that I wanted to work that were a good fit um, you know I knew I needed to feed my soul with the work that I did and um, I had kind of you know interesting things that I'd done before but I knew that some of them just didn't tick the right boxes so you can kind of take that bit for granted and notice the things that we are still to improve on and get right mm. and because there's yeah, always yeah, work yeah. to be done Yeah. but we yeah we are very lucky and it would be difficult to find something that did um, yeah, did tick all those boxes, you know, that you did think. There's always something interesting, new challenge, gorgeous people, you know. Yeah. You've seen people's uh, children grow up as well, the customers and being part of part a community, of the community hub is yeah. quite is quite yeah, something. Yeah. And I think there's something I know we've talked about this over the years, like you know, there's loads of elements to what we do but at the end of the day we're just providing people with good food and there's something so like mm. pure about that it's just you know we know people need to eat we're not trying to sell them crap that they don't need you know everybody needs to eat and we allow them to eat well you know without spending a fortune so yeah just to take a step back and know that the work we do is just kind of know just simple really at the end of the day is we can make it a bit complicated sometimes but we can <laughs> and we're very lucky to work in all the different areas so you know we probably spend me and you about 50 percent shop floor up yeah. here in the offices and um you know i spend quite a bit of time working on veg so you're lifting sacks of potatoes you, and, and it's kind of this is what it's about this is the the, you know the, the other work that we do up here is to enable the shop to run smoothly and that's you know it's, just to yeah. keep it simple yeah, yeah. and um, yeah, focus and just, on what's yeah, important for, for kind of personal well-being having that, that real contrast mm. is I think well certainly for me just really crucial you know you can use the different sort of parts of your brain and using your body as well and that seems crucial it's like you've got well a number of roles within you know you're not just working in the checkout you're not just working in veg which you mm. might get you know generally mm. in the bigger supermarkets mm-hmm. that's probably what you know one of the reasons to stay in for so long is because it becomes interesting every day is not the same mm. so I think it's crucial mm. and it's definitely a place where not only is every day not the same but your role can sort of change over over the years that you're here I mean I think both of us have, have experienced that you can you don't just have a go mm. at anything you fancy, but you know over time your skills and interests do develop, and you sort of build up new. You know you can get training. We we have a, a decent sort of access to training budgets, and you can explore things that are of interest to you as as well as being useful for the business. Um, and yeah, I think that's that help people. It helps people stay here longer. Um, in our cases. And it's crucial. It's crucial not to have a high turnover of staff because you want people to be embedded into the Mm. culture and working. And then Mm. just like you guys being here for so long, you're probably like five staff in one in a way because of all that build up of what you can do. Whereas some companies it'll be you know six months in and out, just constantly rolling. That's why people will be given a dedicated role because it's maybe easy to train them up because they know they're not going to be sticking around. So it's a great model, and I think as well, it's amazing that there's such a you know. You know, there is an ethical alternative for people to come to, particularly you know in this area, Manchester. And you know, if we'd be going for twenty three years, it must have been really rare back then to be many even like this. Oh yeah, and and the people who set Unicorn up were told countless times that that's a daft idea, that's not going to work. Um, and you know, good for them. You know, they wanted to set up a shop where they wanted to go and buy things, and there wasn't one around, so they did it, and they had 
enough conviction to believe it would work. Um, yeah, very much in the spirit of the Rochdale pioneers. I mean, a very different situation, but that kind of people coming together to meet their own needs as well as the, the needs of their kind mm. of wider community. But people did think they were a bit mad, I think. Well, I mean, at the time, no, <laughs> green politics is in the mainstream all the time, isn't it? You know, then it was very much an offshoot, you know, an isolated thing. And um, fair trade was seen as something that was, you know, well intended, but maybe didn't taste as nice. Or, you know, organic was, well, I mean, organic was just food that our grandmas eat. But then it was, it had been given this name and it was not really understood and was seen as a premium thing. So things have changed a lot. I think now consumers understand, you know, that um, organic is natural that fair trade is is just is a just just a food system um and the people who set unicom up had the foresight to to be really clear about these things are important we can set this up and there will be you know enough demand in the future people do care enough about this mm. yeah and they were so right yeah. yeah and it's just basic food that people cook with yeah so you can't go wrong with that and, yeah. you know there's such a movement now that's going, you know, people want a more ethical, organic, you know, it's really, mm. it is, it's getting much bigger. Obviously, there's the other side of things as well, it seems to be getting worse. But to know that mm. you've been in your shining light in a way for that and can inspire others along the way. I've noticed on your website that you almost are very, like you said before, very open with how you run the business, about the business plan and just saying, like, here you go, we're willing to share mm. how we do it. Mm. Feel free to take anything and everything of this. Yeah, I mean, we would, like, truly, truly love to see unicorns, you know, under a different name, perhaps, but, you know, people operating with this kind of model in every city in the UK, there's so, there's so much of an appetite for what we do. People come from all over the northwest. when they mm. move away, they come back and see their friends and bring the car so they can do a bulk shop. Um, yeah, I mean, there is such an appetite for it, and people do come to kind of experience what it's like here there are some barriers land is very expensive to get buildings you know we were lucky we bought this building in uh, 2004 but it was a million pound then it was a lot of money and we were just you know really um, I don't know at the time it seemed a bit mad but it was like yes it's gonna work it doesn't matter it's a lot of money it'll be okay um, <laughs> To be honest, so, yeah, if we hadn't bought it then, we'd have probably missed the boat. It, it would be yeah. very, very difficult to buy. Three times that now. So. Yeah. yeah. So there's that financial barrier for some. And also, like, setting up any business, you need people who are entrepreneurial, but with the social good as a name rather than profit. Mm. So they need to put in all that early sweat equity, that, you know, which has its rewards when you see something, when you create something. And that's, that's kind of that thing of, of finding a group of entrepreneurs who want to work together to create something they're not going to own in the future, they're going to curtake mm. and pass on to others. Mm. But it, it will provide a social good and um, it's not happened so much on this scale. Mm. So We've had loads, we, we have visitors all the time and the, the Grow a Grocery Guide that you mentioned that's that's the resource we have online with loads of um, information about our model and like you said business plans and information on you know how we do our margins how we structure the, the staffing all that kind of thing it's all that stuff has been downloaded and accessed thousands of times by people well all, all over the world actually um, and we know that we've definitely played a sort of supporting role in helping other businesses get established um, many of which have gone on to do brilliant things like all over the UK there's some really nice examples but I, yeah that scale thing nobody mm. I don't think has done it on quite this scale where you can genuinely sort of offer an alternative to you know Morrison's or Tesco's or whatever where people can, can come and do the bulk of their weekly shop if not their entire weekly shop um, yeah that has yet to be replicated I think one thing I wanted to talk about is like the importance of buying local and the impact it has and I think the more we can become aware of that and conscious of the impact it makes like but for every pound that you would spend it might be around about 68p 70p that goes back into local economy where if you shop uh, high street so you know it's way below 50% that goes back in and 
that it just benefits the entire area rather than if it if all the shops are just template shops everywhere it's almost like sucking the wealth out of them areas and just sending it to wherever them head offices are which may be london so it's refreshing to see mm. yeah um i mean tax wise we know that you know there's an awful lot of tax is not paid by large companies and um so you know you can often there's, i mean there's a mark fair tax mark which is uh, a really interesting thing to look out for and that's companies that are paying which is just what they should pay they, they shouldn't need a certificate for it but uh, the fair tax um which helps keep money in the in the economy um but with um with a real local economy you know i was hoping to get some of the growers to come to this but it's really you know it's a busy, busy time, time for them then they do like the hardest work for the lowest wage um, but we have like growers that are, are local suppliers as well, you know, and to kind of to close that loop, it's lower carbon, it's um, more money in the local economy. Um, yeah, it's there's lots of things to focus on, like organic, local, fair trade, and they've all got the the benefits that they bring back to society. I think one of the the key things as well is not being a shareholder owned company you know the the money that we make is either paid to staff who like are local and are going to spend it in the local economy or it's invested back in the business or it's given away and we we, we give away quite a quite a lot of money um both locally and internationally to to kind of projects and charities and campaign groups that are, are sort of that we see as sort of trying to build the kind of world we're, we're trying to build as well um, and that's something we're really proud of and it helps us keep our our prices competitive as well not having to make a vast amount of profit for shareholders um, or for you know t to pay kind of really high wages to, to executives and, and so on. I understand from reading a little bit online that is it five percent of the wages that are given away into organisations? Yeah, so and it charities? doesn't come out of our wages, but that's how we calculate it, um, which is quite an unusual way of doing it, isn't it? Yeah. So often, if you have um, a fund that's associated with your profits, that can ebb and flow quite a lot, and it's easy to manipulate profits. So the idea of having it linked to wages was that um, it's linked to growth. So as we grow and we can afford to pay more wages or we hire more people, that pot um, increases at the same pace. Mm. Yeah, um, so it means as we get better off as staff, we can't do that without equally you know, growing that fund at the same time. Because wages come before, in a conventional company the profit is what you've got left after you've paid your wages so if you're paying people really high wages you might make a very tiny profit and therefore the amount you, you would give away is quite small um, so it, it's something that our founders kind of established right at the beginning in fact it's in our principles of purpose and um, I think the value of that decision that they made then has has become really evident in recent years where we've I can't remember what the proportion is as a if you did calculate it as a sort of percentage of our profits but it's I think it high. just means it's not if it's not seen as um, that's just how it is it's an there's, embedded cost isn't it there's yeah there's lots of opportunity for discussion about oh well it's really tough here or these things are happening it's like no this is just how we trade that's one of our pr basic yeah. principles yeah. it's a pull that off. <laughs> yeah so um, yeah and members are really proud of it you know I think yeah. really proud of it and learn a lot if you have a look on the website where they've got uh, where we have a few examples um, of the one and four percent some of the four percent uh, case studies are really interesting projects that are happening and um, every year when we check in with that fund um, and see what the proposals are for um, investments and contributions it, it we learn about what's happening in the world which you know is, is good we can get stuck in unicorn it's really amazing so you just feel like you know when you come in here you're having that impact and you're supporting them charities i noticed as well um and it's something that i um 
but I need to talk about it actually yesterday about the you know the carbon offset and stuff and I like the way your approach is, is rather than you know paying to offset your carbon it's like well actually we think there's a better way to do it and we think there needs to be more trees so we're going to support this trust up in Scotland to which I don't know how many hectares of land it was but you know you know you're coming here to work that you're planting trees as well and doing a lot of good yeah because every business has a has a carbon impact you know you can't really well perhaps there is a way of of making a business carbon neutral but we've yet to find it if there is yeah i mean really isn't it and it's really difficult because things become popular you know terms like carbon neutral and there's you know studies that show you can say that you're carbon neutral but not all the trees that you plant grow and it's like let's say we're doing that because we know that we have an impact and we're you know hopeful but we're not pretending that we are perfect and you know it's it's just an acknowledgement of the way we trade has has uh, its flaws has an impact and a, and a way to mitigate that so you touched on local growers and stuff i understand that you've got is it 21 acres of land which you you know you were using to you know grow your own food and stuff and it's not that far away from here that's true. Um, we bought it in 2008. It's in Glazebury, so it's kind of Lee Wigan Way. Um, and there was a, a grower uh, cooperative that were farming on the land, but it's been mothballed for a few years now. They had um, a, a flooding problem with United Utilities, which really impacted on um, how they were growing. And they were also, both growers in this cooperative had small children long hours and field scale crops which um, if you're not familiar with crops they're kind of they're harder to make a margin on labor intensive and really on you you want a bigger scale to be able to farm as like brassicas and things so um, it's been mothballed trees planted hedges you know so it's lovely for the ecosystem at the moment and uh, regularly looked after by by the, those growers still um, but we're also looking to get planning permission, protected growing and accommodation on site. The idea being that we could create an infrastructure for growing um, plants that could, um, they, they can get a better margin for the grower so the tenant farmer can have more reliable um, income. Protected growing is like an insurance policy against the weather fluctuations. When we say protected growing, we mean like poly, poly tunnels so that you can. I know. I assume everybody knows. <laughs> like it's got a control. force field around it. It's <laughs> yeah. protected from everything. Um, and also, uh, crops, crop substitution for things that we currently get from Europe. We, it's a way to extend the season. So, it's we don't know if we'll get planning permission, and then if we do, we've still got the logistics of can we get a tenant who wants to live there etc but this is this is the plan to you know we think in the future there's going to be greater demand for a more local supply of organic produce that has a lower carbon input and hopefully that land will be used for that end yeah and we'll have it kind of ready when it's when the time's right and then talking about you know doing things that improve the environment one thing i've always liked about when i've came here for the food and veg none of it is wrapped in plastic it's literally i don't even have to put it in a paper bag if i don't want mm. the best that goes in a paper bag is maybe the, the little cherry tomatoes but everything else can just be piled in mm. yeah. to the basket and then it goes into my bags so just just having that choice you know you it will still you know we can't get here sometimes all the time so we'll still go to other places but the amount of plastic that comes mm. off everything your cucumbers your bananas everything is wrapped in it yeah yeah I know there's a big movement at the moment, like people are sort of rebelling against it and they're doing mm. sort of group ripping off the plastics and just leaving it in the store to make a, a thing. So. My friends do quite a bit of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's something that we've done from the beginning. I mean, it just seemed like it, it was clear that plastic was being used very unnecessarily. Um, and I think, you know, there was there was just no reason not to really. And it's so it's it's such a USP because quite apart from anything else, just coming in and being hit in, you know, with your people say the first taste is with the eyes. You know, you you walk in and you're just met with this sea of, you know, beautiful fresh produce that is just there for the touching and the smelling and the, uh, yeah. And you can you can pick the amount 
that you want. You can give it a squeeze, see if it's right. You can smell it, you can touch it. Um, and yeah, finally, there is this movement um, and, and retailers are starting to, to respond to, to this sort of 20 years later. Um, and hopefully, you know, one day this will be the norm, but it's, it is still quite unusual at the moment. It is. It's given us a push as well to look at our, our the rest of our range, yeah, the commodities yeah. that we sell. I mean, originally, you know, we looked at bins and the habit, but it just wasn't going to work. Selling the things on the scale that we wanted to to compete with supermarkets, you know, people want to grab and go and all this kind of, you know. But now the landscape's changing. Consumers are ready for different alternatives. So you know, we're seeing a shift for us that way. You know, we're trialing some different things and. Yeah. You know, you can see the future is going to be even better for, for those options in, in Unicorn. Um, I think we're definitely going, we're, we're, what we're trying to do is not replace one problematic kind of packaging with another because although paper is, is, has a, you know, a, a much um, less problematic uh, sort of impact at the end of its life, it can get recycled, its production is actually very... Um, it, it produces four times the carbon emissions of plastic, so it's not, you know, in itself, it's not a sort of. Th there is no such thing as a good throwaway packaging. So, so that one of the other things that we're sort of trying to communicate to customers at, at the moment is, don't swap one for the other. Just don't use anything, you know, like you do. Just just pile it in your basket. We don't mind handling it loose at the till. Um, and and yet, like Kelly says, looking at, at places around the shop where we can just cut out that need for throwaway packaging altogether rather than just you know finding something new to replace plastic with yeah. which we'll, we'll probably discover in a few years has its you know because there's lots of issues with the sort of biodegradable and plant-based stuff that's coming on now not to say that they're not an improvement but who yeah. knows we'll find out in the future because sometimes you think something is a good good thing and it turns out it's not better thing is mm. not to have that product yeah. and yeah People are really getting used to bringing in the Tupperware dishes and bringing them to the deli and getting yeah. the salads and curries and things put straight into them. And I think they're... It's fun. been amazing, actually. We said, mm, I yeah. think it was... I think it was in about August last year, we started charging for the plastic pots that we use on the deli counter. And we were already on a reuse rate of about 20%. And we... I just sort of picked this 40... We said we want to get to 40% by the end of we the year. We thought it was ambitious. We thought, I don't quite know where that figure came from. It just felt like, right, let's double it. Let, let's make that our target. Who knows? And we, we hit 40% by the end of the year. So, yeah, so 40% of our olive salad kind of, you know, anything that you put in a pot at the deli is now going into a container that, that somebody's brought with them. And that that's success, I think. And it's pretty amazing. good, yeah. Not everybody plans the trip out. No, yeah. but but people are just they're, they're ready for it. Like you say, they really mm -hmm. they don't want to be responsible for you know mountains of plastic waste either. So, and I've spotted some of the refill counters now. That you, yeah, are they relatively new? Trialing yeah. them. Yeah, yeah, and we're rolling hopefully rolling them out with our seed section soon. Mm -hmm. um, for us, some of it is how the logistics work with like. Shopping in the fruit and veg area, you'll know that you need a bit more space because you have to park your trolley up and then go and fill up your bags. And so, we've we've had a trial in one area of the shop. Um, it's it's working. I mean, people love the idea of it, but we've only had a limited line, so we can't really see how you know how popular the use will be. Mm. So we're going to start to roll it out and then see what challenges it brings, and then you know how we can how we can meet them. I think it, yeah, the, the point you made earlier about whether people, because obviously we are, we are aiming to compete with the supermarkets and be a place that can come, you know, people can come in and do a big shop. And we've had this uncertainty about whether people, you know, whether those extra few seconds that you would have to spend filling a dispenser, you know, using a dispenser to, to buy stuff would make the difference between someone just not buying it. Um, so that's all because you know at the end of the day we're a business and we do need to sell stuff to you know all the decisions we made are we, we make are a mixture of kind of ethical and commercial you know factors being weighed up you're not you're, you're no example to anybody if you're not trading yeah um, exactly can't yeah. pay the growers and 
Yeah, so so we, we don't kind of race into these decisions just sort of feeling like this um, emotional impulse to do the right thing. We want to make sure that it is the right thing and that it's going to contribute to a, a you know, a, uh, what's the word? Uh, a business model that is... Um, sustainable. Sustainable. It's financially word, sustainable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, as well yeah. as everything else. Yeah, and it feels like you're going about it the right way, you know, trial and error in small areas of the shop. But the great mm. thing is, you know, the, in terms of the, the usables at the deli, mm. you know, that's amazing from 20 to 40%. And you could probably get, you know, the next few years, it'd be more than half of people will be doing we that. Hope so. so, yeah, yeah. One thing that I've always admired as well about the store is that, this may not be true, but it's what I understand it was that there's no refined sugar in, in any products. Mm. No. <laughs> it, it depends how you define refined sugar, and this but, is well, something coconut that palm sugar. That is that. I know that's not refined sugar, but I think we ha- might have one product with coconut sugar in it actually. But so what we don't have is cane sugar, which is what a lot of people mm. have kind of come to understand by the word refined sugar. So we don't have like granulated sugar. Okay. But there are some things. You know, we have things that you would think were sweet we have um, like some waffles and they've got corn syrup in them and that's the difficult thing that if people think that we're sugar free then they're inadvertently thinking that these things have not got sugars but this thing's got fruit sugars in and it's the percentage if people are aware and want to cut down on that sugar that they they should look at with because most of the things we sell are ingredients they're just natural yeah. it's not it's not an issue but there are some things that have got not cane sugar, but other sugars which can, which the body treats in the same way. So, um, yeah, because yeah, a, a, any kind of syrup is is refined. You know, it hasn't just appeared in in mm. that way naturally, and is concentrated and so on. So, it's a constant sort of battle for us to to find the right place to draw the line and not kind of not mislead customers with that because basically if something tastes really sweet it's got a lot of sugar in it you know mm. some kind of sugar and yes that sugar might also have a bit of nutritional value like you know maple syrup has a bit of um, minerals and so on in it that, that cane sugar doesn't but for example if you're diabetic you shouldn't be eating maple syrup any more than you should be eating cane sugar so yeah it's a it's an interesting Interesting area. Well, it, well, it's great that there's no cane sugar because pretty much if you go in to normal supermarkets and you pick up, you know, any packet, pretty much sugar is in pretty much everything. Mm. I think yeah. that's that's the key thing, and that is something that we have been pretty good on. I think is is those hidden sugars that are in things mm. like sauces and um, you know pasta sauces and and so on that people just don't realise, they don't even taste sweet because yeah. it's just part of a blend. Um, so, yeah, I think we, we generally, sugar is, it isn't generally in things that you wouldn't expect it to be in. I can say that much. Okay, got it. So, the, you know, obviously it sounds like from the outside it's an amazing model and, you know, you've got loads of autonomy and loads of direction you know you can really influence the business but I'd imagine there must be still you know some really challenging times you know being a part of it and you know what sort of like challenges are you facing right now or is there any that you've you've had to overcome which have been really tricky? Uh, Space is um, I mean there's been lots of challenges on different levels Um, physically space is is a challenge at the moment and access there's a lot of development around this area, there's you know property prices are quite bonkers around here, um, and so um, the traffic just coming directly towards Unicorn. I mean, a lot of it is coming into Unicorn, but there's also flats that have been. This wasn't really a residential area when we were trading mm-hmm. early days, um, so we have been seeking to you know look at how we can improve on that and separate our commercial access because we get lorries delivering things by the pallet here and that's really important to our business models it means buy a direct straight to the site pass, pass on the savings to customers um, and negotiating for that space has been very long drawn out process and has uncertainty which ripples through the co-op so um, that's something that is a, a, a physical challenge um, and um, and space in the build within the building itself as well. I mean, we're 
we're probably sort of over trading really on the site that we've got um, you know you want high sales but then when you get to a certain point trying to pack that number of people into the shop trying to pack that amount of stuff into the warehouse can become almost less efficient if you're you know if you're trying to do too much in a, in a space that isn't quite big enough definitely this old scale of economies mm. yeah so you come into sort of the maximum amount of staff that you can have is it getting close yeah yeah we we would both say so i don't i mean it i think on different levels and like structurally to, to how we make decisions i mean at this point in time because you know you can find different ways to communicate and devolve power etc but um it's, it seems to be at the moment and also i think um that's it's a good thing because there's also always savings you can make we talk about needing space but we could create space as well you know we can streamline things we can simplify things they're not always the easiest way to go um you know earlier on it's always easier to think oh well we could have that bit you know we bought the building so we doubled in size you know and but there are savings that we can make that that mean that we can work with what we've got and that's that's a challenge that we're kind of looking at yeah and that includes staff as well you know we could choose to um, not reduce the number of staff but to, to streamline what we do here so that we don't need to keep growing um, the, the membership of the co-op because yeah uh, my feeling is is definitely that many more than this and mm. and we'd be struggling to kind of remain collective and and with this sort of shared vision and you know knowing each other it's already you know it's a big group of people to kind of stay in contact with on a personal level um so yeah i think we're about there just on that that's a really interesting point you must get some develop some really good friendships working here like you know real amazing you know because community and connection is so important to our health and our well-being and to be around that you know all the time probably has its challenges as well but generally you must have some met some great people you, you do and you see it especially when you get um a group of people who are recruited around the same time and you see you know when they stay here for years you see this close bond that they get it's almost like when you start school with some with a small group of people um <laughs> And I think there's times when um, our structure has been deeply challenged as um, when you kind of see the flip side of that and you can see the impact on people's mental health. And we want to be, you know, I can't use this word now, like a joyous place. You know, you want to bring more joy into, you know, want to run a business efficiently, you know, based on our principles and improve people's well-being and not um, undermine it. And so, you know, that's something to be conscious of, you know, and it's a good reason to question growth for... For growth's sake. Yeah, um, to what end. Mm. Yeah, it's it's a really... It, it can be very kind of all-encompassing, this place, and that's in, in good ways and bad, you know. We're so... It, it's really important to us, and it does provide for many of us the sort of framework for our social life as well as our working life and it's us kind of living our values as well so it's it's somewhere that um, you give a lot of yourself to but you get an incredible amount back and yeah I think that's another thing that we, we can take for granted a bit sort of being feeling like we're part of something that, that matters and that we're we're working with people that feel the same and yeah the kind of connection that comes through that which can be very intense you know in in, in challenging ways as well but mm. it's it's an incredible incredible position to be in and I'm not you know it's definitely not only co-ops where you get that but they do I think they do foster something pretty special in terms of connection <clears throat> yeah definitely so outside of work do you, what do you guys do to switch off? You know, does it get a bit much? You've been here for so long. You know, you're embedded into the into the company. You have quite a bit of influence here. Um, like you said, it can be probably you'll be always thinking about it some ways because there's always something to be doing. But I'm interested. You know, what do you do to switch off? Any little rituals or daily routines that you might have? I almost He's don't got... want to say what I do. <laughs> I do a hell of a lot of yoga, but <laughs> it's too much of a stereotype. Um, 
do a lot of yoga meditation but that's because I, well I would do that wherever I was <laughs> it's a beautiful thing you don't have to do yoga to work at Unicorn you don't have to and most people I shouldn't really link the two together <laughs> oh no it's a wonderful thing it's um, and I play I play a lot of ping pong which um, is Amazing. perhaps less of a stereotype um, and I go I go walking a lot as well there's quite a crew of people doing uh, a lot of walking. Yeah, there's, there's a, a lot there's of a lot of nature lovers, as you would expect. A, there's a ping pong crew as well. It's ping pong a, a, crew. Our numbers are growing. And there's a yoga yeah. crew. And there's a yoga crew. Yeah, all right. It's not okay. a conversation. <laughs> That's amazing. You touched on meditation. Do you do any sort of particular form of meditation? No, I just do it as a part of the whole practice. The yeah. yoga. Okay. Mm. Okay. Just interesting to know. So, who do you admire that you feel are doing good in the world and I could potentially have on my podcast? So do you mean in the area? Anyone. I travel a bit doing it as well, well, in this country at the moment. Um, Just anyone that you might admire. I mean, our growers are a a big one for me. They Um, are, definitely. Not the right time yeah, Glebelands. Yeah. Um, they're always so busy though so I almost feel like recommending mm. them to do an interview is kind of probably not actually doing them giving them more work to do <laughs> some of our 1% recipients um, that's that's the fund that we support UK projects from um, there's some really lovely projects in Manchester doing therapeutic gardening with asylum seekers and refugees so one is called Growing Together in Levenseum there's another one that's run by a faith-based organisation in Beswick called Revive. Um, yeah, they're both... Well, yeah, you definitely couldn't argue that they're, they're doing good. They're doing amazing things with people that have come from unimaginably sort of difficult situations and had you know, awful times getting here as well. So um, That's good to know. Yeah, they do so inspiring. And there's Cracking Good Food as well that was set up by um, someone who was a member at Unicorn years ago. Um, And they do um, some really interesting work with different social groups. Um, So cooking from ingredients and um, they also do workshops that kind of help support that work Mm. that kind of some people pay for but some are funded and... um, Yeah, they call it a community cookery network and it's... Yeah, that is a really lovely organisation, actually. Yeah, and she's really passionate about what yeah. she does. She, yeah, yeah, she would be good to talk to. And that's another great thing for people that will come here to work, however long you know that experience and knowledge of being involved in all areas of the business mm. is invaluable. Mm. That when you do step outside, I'd imagine a significant amount of people would want to maybe set up their own thing mm. because yeah, people yeah. have gone on to do really mm. interesting things. I think it sets the bar pretty high for kind of what you want to do with your working life, definitely. Okay, last couple of questions. Um, so this podcast is all about showing what good people are doing, like yourselves and Unicorn. What advice would you give someone who's looking to go out into the world and do their own bit of good? Find out how you can use your skills, I guess. You know, try and you know identify what they are rather than just sort of thinking... You know, I've got to work for a charity because that's how, you you know... I would really encourage people to, you know, look at the cooperative model, though, as well, like, because almost any skill can be useful in a co-op. So if people aren't aren't sort of familiar with with how co-ops work, you know, we're not charities, we're not... um, You know, we're we're enterprises, we're businesses, um, but... There's a lot of a lot of capacity to do good through collective working. Sounds good. I think I'd just say find something that you love. You know, um, if you want to do something that is for the collective good, for the social good, or working in the environment, make sure you've got a passion for it and you enjoy it, and then you'll get more out of it and you'll give more as well. Perfect. Okay, to wrap up, so what's the best way that people can kind of connect with Unicorn? Is it social media, website? Come here. Come in the shop. Come in, of course. (laughs) Of course they want to come in. There's nothing that replicates being here, I think. The smell, the the 
face for the eyes. Um, but if you can't come in, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, and we're sort of on Twitter, although we're not very good at it. We do some stuff like that. Just enough to, you know, what we think we're expected to do. <laughs> but we really focus in the shop. Absolutely. Well, I'll make sure that I add all the links and stuff. So, well, that's it. Thank you very much for your time today. I've really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Good, good. So there you go. There's today's episode wrapped up with uh, Kelly and Debbie from Unicorn Grocery. And if you're in the area, if you're in Manchester, I really recommend you go in there. And they really are inspiring plenty of other people to go out there and set up their own cooperatives and to show them how they can do it, that we can all do it, we can can all buy more local, we can be more ethical, more sustainable. It's possible and for that, they're definitely doing good. And, And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. And if you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, I'd really appreciate it if you left me a review. Anyway, until next time, have a good one.